from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Hello, friends, and welcome to Washington Watch. I am Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins today. So glad that you are with us. Quick programming note. I know that many of you have expressed your your concern and your bewilderment. Where is Tony? Why has it been the JV team for so long? But we assure you, uh, Tony has been away resting with his family, and he will be back in the chair on September 2nd. So right after Labor Day, he will be back with you, and he looks forward to doing that uh, very, very soon. Today on the program, is Major League Baseball raising money to pay for gender reassignment surgeries for children? Nate Hotchman from National Review will join us to tell us what his research has found. Also, a year after the Taliban was given control of Afghanistan, what is life like there for Christians? Todd Nettleton from Voice of the Martyrs will join us to share the challenges and the way God is working through them. Also, Mikhail Gorbachev, the man who, along with President Ronald Reagan, ended the Cold War, has died. Professor William Inboden will join us to help us understand Mikhail Gorbachev's legacy and how we should remember him. But first, our headline today. As you just heard, last weekend, a senior FBI official in Washington abruptly resigned after coming under congressional scrutiny for suspected political bias related to his handling of the Hunter Biden laptop investigation. Now, the Washington Times has received reports from whistleblowers who allege corruption within the FBI ranks. Republicans on Capitol Hill have said they must investigate if they take the majority in November. Meanwhile, Attorney General Merrick Garland responded with a memo to all with a memo to all Department of Justice employees in which he reiterated the department's policy of prohibiting communications with members of Congress. Help me here to help me sort all of this out is U.S. Representative Dan Bishop, who's a member of the House Judiciary Committee and the Homeland Security Committee. He represents the 9th Congressional District of North Carolina. Congressman Bush, Bishop, good to see you today. Hi, Joseph. Good to be with you. And by no means are you the JV team, brother. Oh, well, you're kind. I mean, I am, <laughs> but thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, but let's let's get into this story. There's lots of back and forth. Uh, we know that some FBI officials resigned uh, last week o- over some concerns about uh, um, impartiality. We should we'll, we'll put it that way. And now we have these reports from whistleblowers. Um, what's your reaction to all of this? Uh, it's very troubling. Uh, ever since the raid on Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago compound, the questions have been multiplying. But that appeared at the same time almost that uh, new whistleblowers came forward to Senators Grassley and Johnson and also Ranking Member Jim Jordan. Uh, there's just a swirl of controversy that continues to uh, sort of go on and on around the Department of Justice and FBI. And Americans are justifiably concerned about it. And uh, Republicans have appropriately been asking questions. But I would say these newest developments, I mean, where there's smoke, there's fire. Mr. Tebow, who was um, who, who left the FBI Washington field office uh, in the last couple of days, you know, that that appears to be there, there's a reason that he was that he was essentially ushered out, I'm sure. Now, we hear about these whistleblowers, plural. Do you know how many people we're talking about? 
I well, uh, I know that uh, I've heard the word uh, twenty mentioned in connection with uh, by ranking member Jordan over the course of the last year, roughly. And uh, I don't know what the numbers are for Senators Grassley and Johnson, except I know they're different people. So uh, there are a lot of people within the FBI who are concerned about the way that agency is being managed and about the implications, the, the apparent um, politicization of the FBI. And it should be of concern to every single American. It should be of concern to President Biden as well. Well, it seems that... Uh... One man's whistleblower is another man's traitor, and it, it depends on the side of the issue that you're on, and it seems to swing in a partisan way. And we know that uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland responded uh, to these reports of whistleblowers with a memo to the department uh, reminding everyone that it is against department policy to have communications with members of Congress. Is this an appropriate response? Is that just a way to remind uh, staff what the rules are, or do we think it's something uh, more serious than that? Well, the, the timing is very remarkable, coming amidst all of these developments, uh, and it seems to be internally contradictory. So the folks who've come to the two senators that I mentioned and the ranking member Jordan are uh, FBI whistleblowers. The law protects whistleblowers. And this statement from the Department of Justice at once uh, discourages or, or talks about, you know, how uh, employees of the Justice Department should not be in touch with Congress except through channels. But on the other hand, they say, but we don't mean to undermine whistleblower protections. So which is it? I think they are speaking out of both sides of their mouth. And I think that's the last thing the Justice Department and the FBI need to be doing at this point in time. I think one of the challenges that Attorney General Merrick Garland has is his history, uh, which is not necessarily his fault. But because he was a nominee uh, to the Supreme Court uh, by President Obama, and his nomination was stopped, essentially, by the election of President Trump, his role now as Attorney General, which it seems to be perpetually investigating uh, former President Trump in some way, it just doesn't smell right. Uh, because even if he is behaving above board in all ways, the fact that his opportunity to be on the Supreme Court was stopped by President Trump just kind of creates this, this appearance of impropriety, even if there isn't real impropriety. And to that point, Congressman Bishop, um, do we think that, you're, that the Republicans in Congress are going to have a chance to investigate this issue? And if so, do you think there's a way to do this in a way that doesn't just continue to inflame the partisan differences? Is there a way to bring people together around a common set of facts and a common understanding of what our country is supposed to be? Yeah, Joseph, it's very difficult to accomplish anything on a bipartisan basis in Washington as uh, attitudes are now displayed. And I, you know, obviously uh, people would say this is one-sided, but I've seen it uh, displayed with, you know, uh, without exception by Democrats in control. They've not sought to work with Republicans. They've used their majority to run over Republicans. I think we ought to open, have an open hand to try to encourage Democrats to join with us if we're in the majority as we conduct oversight. But oversight needs to be done in an unprecedented way. It means it needs to be creative. It needs to be aggressive, but a lot of it can occur in private. It doesn't necessarily always have to be a public hearing uh, where everyone's trying to take, you know, get sound bites developed. But we need to know, you know, what is what is the problem? I don't think it's in the interest of either party for the FBI and the Department of Justice to be politicized. Now, 
Democrats have used it in a politicized way since President Trump first came on the scene in 2016. But um, and, and we've seen that over and over again. I think to your point about the attorney general, he has unfortunately stepped right into the middle of that when he uh, issued his memo last October targeting parents of school children and trying to suggest that they're, you know, they're harbingers of threats and the like. But uh, but I, I think it, nobody in America, the people on both Democrat and Republican side out there do not desire to see this uh, government become a, a, uh, a partisan battering ram or to continue to be. And so I think if we if we all get together on that score, uh, we can make progress together. And so to that point, to, to maybe ask you to rephrase that a bit, then do you really believe that people care if the FBI has been politicized? Is that a bipartisan concern in people's heart of hearts where they understand that if the FBI essentially becomes a, a political wing of the White House, that that's a real problem for our country? Do, you, do both parties understand that? You know, Joseph, I just had a telephone call today with someone who's very influential on the homeland security side, and I also served on that committee. And one of the things that that person said was exactly that, that I don't, you know, there may be momentary political gain uh, that people want to have. And so when they see the FBI, DOJ go out and do the bidding of Democrats and interfere with the, in elections on their behalf and the like, uh, they may think on, in the short term that that's beneficial. But all of these things can be turned around. And in fact, you know, it gets very difficult to continue to be the party that favors neutral, fair, and unpoliticized law enforcement if you're always the victim of the other side uh, using it that way. So, yeah, I, I don't think Democrats in the country, you know, the people, the American people or independents, uh, any more than Republicans, believe that, you know, using the FBI that way is the right, the right answer. Yeah, I agree with you, certainly within the public. I hope it's true within Washington state or within the, the within the nation, within Washington, D.C., excuse me. Uh, my concern is that humility and recognizing mistakes and errors and trying to correct those is seen as political, politically vulnerable. So nobody ever does it anymore. And of course, nobody can govern perfectly. Uh, but the incentives to admit our mistakes and correct our mistakes just don't seem to be there. But Congressman Bishop, I want to change uh, topics with you very briefly. Uh, President Biden. Biden gave a speech yesterday uh, where he may have surprised a few of his supporters uh, with his pro-police message. He said the answer is not to defund the police, but to increase funding. Let's play clip one. When it comes to public safety in this nation, the answer is not defund the police. It's fund the police. Fund the police. Now, this represents a significant change in his party's messaging. And Congressman Bishop, I know you have something to say, but I want to play one more thing. And I think I'm going to maybe steal some words from your mouth. But let's play clip two to get an, a sense of what his party has been saying recently. Suck it up. Defunding the police has to happen. We need to defund the police. We will be moving funding from the NYPD to youth initiatives and social services. Yes, I support the defund movement. You know, a lot of us were asked if we could imagine a future without police back in 2017 when we were running for office. And I answered yes to that question. We are going to reduce funding in the police department and redirect that money. Police departments uh, are taking a sizable uh, amount of the budget of a lot of municipalities and, and other entities. Uh, we need to look at those budgets. 
pull some of the money back and invest it in other things. It means a dramatic reduction in the number of police in our poor communities, and particularly our poor black and brown communities. I'm asking you to ask yourself, what are you willing to sacrifice to make sure that overfunded police departments are defunded? Congressman Bishop, of course, that's a montage. Several Democratic members of Congress, Mayor de Blasio, among others. Is this an intra-party fight? Well, perhaps so. Uh, it, it, as you say, the words and their own words convict them in a broad swath of the Democratic Party. In fact, I, I would say this, Joseph, uh, President Biden's uh, comments about that and saying you shouldn't defund the police, fund it, it comes awfully late. And, and so you'd have to say even he, if it's an intra-party fight, has been absent on the fighting field for months and months and months while this uh, developed in 2020 and uh, carried on through the early part of his, of his presidency. And here's what's worse. When he chose to trot that out, he, it, it appears to be a cynical effort to demonize half the country because he falsely accuses Republicans of being for defunding. So it does seem to be a very disturbing, despicable kind of commentary by Biden at this point in time. And we actually don't have the time at this point to play that clip where he goes on to accuse Republicans of, of trying to defund the police. It is irony. Uh, some might call it gaslighting, um, but it is political season and sometimes up is down and down is up. But Congressman Bishop, thanks for stopping by and uh, helping us understand it today. Thank you, Joseph. Good to be with you. Coming up, are Major League Baseball teams fundraising to give hysterectomies to children. It kind of looks that way. When we come back, we'll tell you the details of the story. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how his word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and he has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org slash Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that first by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldview's monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview. 
Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose— Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Like most of corporate America, professional sports leagues and teams have become increasingly beholden to left-wing causes. Major League Baseball is no exception with its annual Pride events at ballparks and its decision to pull the 2021 All-Star Game from Atlanta in response to Georgia's election integrity laws. While Major League Baseball's commitment to these causes is mostly symbolic, A recent report from National Review found the majority of its teams directly promote and even helped fund groups that promote gender transitions for children. How did the national pastime go from peanuts and cracker jacks to gender surgeries on children? Joining me now to discuss this is the author of the National Review story, Nate Hotchman. He's an ISI fellow at National Review. Nate, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me, Joseph. I appreciate it. Well, we're grateful to talk to you about this. This is a important but under-the-radar story. Tell our, tell our viewers and listeners uh, what you found. Sure. So I spent the last couple of weeks digging into exactly what kinds of LGBT activist groups and medical clinics, Major League Baseball franchises and teams were funding under the auspices of these LGBT-themed pride nights that 29 out of 30 MLB teams have Every single year now, the only exception, the only MLB team that has never held an LGBT pride night is the Texas Rangers. Every other team has held one and 20 out of the 29 teams that have held one, I found were funding groups that were either promoting sex changes for children as young as 12 years old or medical clinics that were actually providing them themselves, sometimes to the tunes of of tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars and often with the money that they actually generated from ticket sales. So despite the fact the MLB fan base is much more conservative in a lot of ways than the NBA or the NFL, oftentimes their money that they're spending on ticket sales is going directly to fund medical irreversible sex changes for young children. Now, obviously, Major League Baseball is not advertising this, but the question uh, is, Does Major League Baseball even know that this is what they're doing with their funds? Because my assumption would be, and we've seen many examples of this in in the corporate world, where essentially the LGBT kind of mafia comes and says, unless you give us money, we're going to ruin your reputation and say people, tell people you're anti-gay. But if you give us money, then we'll just go away quietly and leave you alone. Do you think that's what's happening here? Or does Major League Baseball actually know what they're doing? Well, it's a combination of both. But to your point, Joseph, the Texas Rangers, who are the only team, as I mentioned, that have never had a Pride Night, 
have come under enormous fire from powerful LGBT groups for not giving in and having a pride night. So uh, it's enormously courageous of that one MLB team to resist this. But I think a lot of the other MLB team, like a lot of corporate leaders, they're not necessarily far left ideologues. They're just driven by incentive structure. And from their perspective, they're going to get a ton of grief. They're going to get threatened by their sponsors. They're going to get threatened by powerful activist groups with a lot of power in the media if they don't actually send money to a lot of these activists and medical clinics that are doing these sex change surgeries. And they probably don't really know the extent to it. They just figure that it's less of a headache to fund it. So a lot of times I think these corporate leaders are just sort of signing bills uh, and the activist groups are actually the ones that are directly involved with what's happening on the ground. Well, that being said, your article points out that the website for Major League Baseball has a social justice section, and it boasts, uh, it, it includes text from the 1619 Project, excuse me, and White Fragility, which is a uh, terrible book that I did actually get through at one point, um, but it's kind of important. It also promotes authors such as Ibram X. Kendi and Angela Davis. Why in the world is Major League Baseball doing this on their website? That's a very good question, and I think this is the kind of question that every conservative and, frankly, just sane MLB fan should be asking, not just of their own personal team, but of uh, the national MLB organization. This is America's pastime, and as I was mentioning, uh, the plurality of fans of MLB and and a lot of teams are Republicans and conservatives in Red America. So this is the kind of thing that MLB is getting away with partially because I think a lot of fans just don't have the time to pay attention to exactly where their money is going, whereas a lot of the activist groups on the left are actively pressuring MLB organizations to do this. So the MLB, like any number of corporations in America, has hired any number of diversity and inclusion and equity officers and uh, bureaucrats over the course of the last few years who have set about implementing a lot of these changes. They're the ones who developed that part of the website and are recommending, you know, avowed communists like Angela Davis on, on the website. And they're the ones who are funding a lot of these groups. But it's up to fans, including the fans who basically make up the revenue stream for the MLB, to actually push back and say that this is unacceptable and that there will be consequences if they continue to capitulate to this stuff. And, and that's one of the challenges because we've seen things like this happen before. We've seen we've seen Coca Cola go through it. We've seen Disney go through it. Um, and and there's always this sense that the, the consumers have to do something about this. Uh, but of course, consumers have a lot better things to do with their time in general than to kind of follow the money trail of which business did I spend my money at, and then what did they do with that money? Right? Nobody has time to do that all the time. Is there really a way to solve this? I think consumers are part of it, but to your point, Joseph, they're not the only thing. I mean, I think a huge part of this is is turning this into an actual movement that changes the incentive structure for organizations like the MLB so that they realize that they're actually going to get more grief from the right and from conservatives than they are going to get from the left and from progressives. And part of that certainly is consumers putting pressure on these organizations, but part of it is politics. I think what you saw with Ron DeSantis in Florida, when he actually inflicted penalties upon Disney for getting on the wrong side of conservatives with public policy and actually demonstrated to Disney that there are going to be political consequences if they tried to inflict this stuff on Florida's children. That's got to be part of the discussion as well. So I think it happens at both the elite political 
and the grassroots level. You have to have a mass political movement where consumers are actually starting to pay attention to this stuff. But you also have to have courageous politicians and leaders at the elite level, like Ron DeSantis, who are willing to take the fight to these organizations. And those two things, I think, working in coordination with one another is the only thing that's going to be able to actually shift the incentive structure. That is a really good point. And Nate, we're basically out of time, but you did reach out to the teams and no one responded. Is that correct? Not as of yet. I haven't heard back from any of them. So, Well, it will be interesting to see if some of them do. Nate Hotchman, National Review, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Joseph. I appreciate it. Just more evidence of how totalitarian this movement is. It leaves nothing alone, and that includes, as we have seen now, Major League Baseball. Coming up, one year since the U.S. forces withdrew from Afghanistan, what's life like for Christians there? We'll talk about it. When we... Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. And the website is TonyPerkins.com. As we mark one year since U.S. forces fully withdrew from Afghanistan, we want to remember the Christians left behind in the country where worship is forbidden and evangelizing now comes with a death sentence. What is the latest on the ground and how can we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Joining me now to discuss this is Todd Nettleton, Chief of Media Relations and Message Integration for Voice of the Martyrs. Todd, good to see you today. Thanks so much. It's good to be with you. Now, first, we know there are Christians in Afghanistan. We want to discuss what life is like for them. Are they there because they couldn't escape or because they chose to stay? I think that's really the amazing part of the story is that many Christians chose to stay. 
Uh, and they knew about the Taliban. They knew the Taliban was taking over the country. They knew what the Taliban theology was. They knew what they would say about them as uh, converts to Christianity out of Islam. And they made that decision to stay. And, and their thought process was, listen, if all of the Christians leave Afghanistan, who's going to be here to be the church? Who's going to be here to share the gospel? And so they made that decision to stay in the country. And what a testimony that is for those of us who live in, in safe and comfortable places who are often running from risk and trying to protect our businesses and our lives and our reputations, to hear the testimony of those who knew that the Taliban was coming, but they said, we're going to stay anyway, because if we don't, no one will be here to preach the gospel. It is convicting on many levels. Todd, what is life like for them now? It is difficult. Um, there's no two ways about it. I, I think, you know, life for everyone in Afghanistan is difficult. Uh, one of the things uh, that we heard, I, I had a guest, John Weaver, who lived in Afghanistan on Voice of the Martyrs Radio a year ago. One of the things he said, he said, the Taliban are fighters, they're not governors. And now for the last year, they've had to be the governors. They've had to actually run things. And the country is in shambles. The economy is in shambles. So everyone is suffering. But our Christian brothers and sisters, then on top of the suffering of everyone else, they have this danger that's in their life. And once it is known that they're a Christian, they have a target on their backs. And it's not first from the Taliban, it's first from their own family members, members of their own tribe who say, we are a Muslim family. You can't be part of our family and not be a Muslim. You have to come back to Islam. That's where it starts. But then obviously, if they get reported to the Taliban, it escalates and it's the power of the national government coming down upon them to say, you have to return to Islam. That's your only choice or else you'll be executed. And Todd, those who do turn from Islam to Jesus, they understand that when that happens to them, right? I mean, this is this is a situation where they have counted the cost, and there is, something has happened in their soul where they're like, it doesn't matter if it costs me my life, which many of them have to have the expectation that it will, but they do it anyway. Is that correct? It, that is absolutely correct. You know, as an Afghan Muslim, you know what it means to say, I'm not going to be a Muslim anymore. I'm going to follow Jesus now. You're putting a huge target right on your chest. And you understand that from day one. But the reality of Christ's love, the reality of the gospel is such that it, it empowers them to make that choice. And obviously, the, the Holy Spirit empowers them. One of the things we can pray for is that more Muslims will make that choice. Remember, the Taliban says, we are the best Muslims. We are, we're doing Islam exactly how it's supposed to be done. So as they run the country into the ground, as they show violence towards those who don't agree with them, uh, our hope is, and my prayer is, that many Afghans will say, well, if, if that's what it means to be a really good Muslim— I'd like to know what the other options are. And in that soil, the gospel seeds are being planted. They can sprout and take root. And I pray that we will see many more Muslims make the choice to follow Christ, even though, as you say, they know that doing so puts their lives at risk. 
Yeah. And that's a really good point. Of course, you don't go to the gospel because it produces really good countries. Uh, you go to the gospel because it's true, but it just so happens that because it's true, it, it creates much better places to live in better countries because God's ways are right and, and most helpful of all. Now, your website, you you point out that there's not a single church Christian church building in the entire nation of Afghanistan. If that's true, how is the gospel being shared there? You know, it's being spread through relationships, through close relationships, because remember, when you tell someone that you're a Christian, they could report you to the Taliban and you could be executed. So you're sharing your faith with people you know well, people you trust at a high level uh, to be able to say, hey, and often it's a it's a questioning process. You maybe ask a question about Islam and you see how they respond. Are are they, you know, maybe a little down on Islam? Okay, maybe I ask another question and see how they respond to that. It's it's certainly not something where you're standing on a street corner preaching the gospel. It happens in relationship and it happens one question, one conversation at a time as you're able to plant seeds and kind of see what someone's response is. Then you take another step and maybe plant another seed. So it is it is a very cautious approach. The other thing that's happening, though, from outside the country, friends and relatives that have moved out of the country are able to call back in. They're able to text message back in. There also are media ministries, online media ministries and broadcast media ministries that are broadcasting the gospel in. And remember, Muslims there are, are seeing the Taliban. They're interested in other faiths. They're interested in a what, what are the other options? What else could we do? And so those internet ministries, those broadcast ministries are are really filling that need for curious Muslims to be able to, to ask some of those questions without publicly identifying themselves as a potential apostate. Todd Nettleton, uh, the Taliban is not the first attempt to destroy the gospel, uh, and they will not be the last, but none will prevail. We know that for sure. Todd, thanks for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Coming up, Former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev died yesterday. We'll take a look at the history behind the headlines. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. 
Again, just text STAND to 67742 and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, Students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Earlier in the program, I told you that Tony was coming back, and he is, but I believe I misspoke on the date. It is not September 2nd. It is September 6th, the day after Labor Day. Tony will be back in the chair with you. So for those of you who are marking your calendars, do so correctly. Also, another programming note, make sure to join us at the Pray Vote Stand Summit that is coming up September 14th through the 16th. I do have those dates correct in Atlanta, Georgia. There will not only be three days of some of the best speakers and thinkers in the country, there will also be a candidate training. There will be a worldview summit for high school and college students that I will be part of. We look forward to seeing you there. Uh, Tony will be there. I will be there. And a whole bunch of your favorite Americans will be there. Prayvotestand.org slash summit for registration and information. Again, that's prayvotestand.org slash summit. When Mikhail Gorbachev took office as the supreme leader in 1985, as the Soviet supreme leader in 1985, he oversaw a country at the peak of its power. The Soviet Union boasted the world's largest military, dominated half of Europe, and had an influence that spanned the globe. Gorbachev, who died yesterday at the age of 91, has been credited for overseeing the reforms that led to the fall of the communist system. But that was never his goal. He saw the desolation and decay of Soviet life and set out to save communism, and in the process led to its downfall. Joining me now to discuss the life and legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev is Professor William Inboden. He's the executive director and Williams Powers Jr. Chair at the William P. Clements Jr. Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin. I think I got that right. He is also the author of the forthcoming book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink. Professor Inboden, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, Joseph. It's great to be with you. It's good to have you with us. Uh, this is an important story. Um, 
to be honest, when I when I first heard the news that Mikhail Gorbachev had died, I was somewhat surprised with the realization that he had been alive all of this time, because it had been so long uh, since we have heard from him on the public stage, at least so long since I had heard from him. But we want to hear a little bit of his story. He took office as the Soviet leader in 1985. Uh, he left in somewhat ignominiously in 1991. Uh, how did he get there? So, yeah, so Gorbachev, over the course of his life, had been uh, your classic loyal Soviet. You know, he came from uh, poverty in a rural part of the Southern Soviet Union, but joined the party at a young age, showed some intelligence and promise. And over the succeeding decades, he worked his way up. You know, the, the Soviet Communist Party was very hierarchical. So he started in the hinterlands as a low-level party official and just worked his way up until by uh, the early 1980s, he had joined the Politburo, which was was the main body of Soviet leadership there in the Kremlin. Uh, and then when the, the last Soviet leader before him, um, Konstantin Chernyenko, died, Gorbachev was then tapped to be the, the Soviet, uh, Soviet leader in March of 1985. So during the time that he ruled the Soviet Empire, the Soviet Union had been around for a long time. It was this global power. What was his ambition? What were his hopes? So, yeah, this is where Gorbachev is a fascinating figure, where he, when he took office, uh, as you mentioned, the Soviet Union stood near the apex of its power externally, but Gorbachev and a very few other people high up in the in the Kremlin realized that internally the Soviet Union was just rotting away, uh, that Soviet communism was a, you know, vile, oppressive, evil system, it was an inefficient economy, and it was really rotting away. And so Gorbachev, while being a dedicated, true-believing communist, he still revered Lenin, you know, the founder of Soviet communism, he wanted to reform Soviet communism. So he wanted to preserve Soviet power, uh, preserve the, the Communist Party's uh, rule over the Soviet Union, but do it in a somewhat more efficient and humane and reformed way. And as, uh, you know, as I talked about in the in a World Magazine article, that was an impossible balance for him to do. But those were his goals when he when he came to power. And I want to dig a bit more into that, because in your article, you you point out the fact that he cut the Soviet nuclear arsenal. He withdrew Soviet troops from Eastern Europe. He released thousands of political and religious prisoners from the gulag. That was different than his predecessors. It doesn't seem like the stereotypical Soviet action. And one might look at that and assume he was just a nicer guy and he wasn't quite as committed to communism than his predecessors. Is that true or not? Uh, it, it's uh, it, it's partly true, right? So by relative standards, by Soviet standards, he was not as as vicious. He was not as brutal. Uh, you know, he did undertake a number of those reforms. But again, it you know bears repeating. He remained a dedicated communist to, to the end until he left office in 1991, and as far as we can tell, until his dying day just 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 yesterday. Uh, so he uh, he was looking for ways to preserve the Soviet system, to preserve the Soviet Union uh, as a, as a, as an empire, really, and to extend its longevity. But he just realized that uh, it needed to recapture uh, some sense of trust and loyalty. For from its people who had become had really grown to detest this oppressive government, uh, that it needed to lift some of its uh, oppressive control of its Eastern European satellites. You know, uh, you know whether it was East, East Germany or Czechoslovakia or Poland or other Central and Eastern European countries. He knew he needed to ease up that control, and he knew that the Soviet Union just could not 
continue economically, that it was bankrupting itself. Um, and that's primarily because Soviet communism didn't work as an economic system. But again, as you know, it's also because of the pressure from the American president, Ronald Reagan. And I think we can't talk about Gorbachev's legacy without talking about President, Reagan, president Reagan's strategy and vision. Yeah, I, I, I want to get exactly into that. I've got one other question on this, though, because when when Americans, when Westerners, I think, uh, hear the name Mikhail Gorbachev, we think about the fall of the Soviet empire. We think about the, the, the destruction of the Berlin Wall. All of these things are, in our minds, from our perspective, wonderful developments that he was part of. How do Russians think about Mikhail Gorbachev? Most Russians detest Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, and this is, again, one of those ironies of history, because I do think he was well-intentioned towards his, his country. Um, but uh, the fact that he presided over the collapse of the Soviet Union, that eventually it led to humiliation and weakness and corruption and poverty uh, for many, many of the Russian people, uh, you know, whatever his good intentions were, the outcomes were not seen as so good by, by most, most Russians. And, you know, the current Russian uh, dictator, Vladimir Putin uh, also detested Gorbachev, and he really capitalized on this. Uh, one reason we hadn't heard from Gorbachev in recent years, as you mentioned, a lot of us forgot that Gorbachev was still alive, uh, was because Putin had really shunted him off to the side, uh, because Gorbachev is a very, you know, resented and detested figure uh, in there, there in Russia. And uh, most Russians just wanted to forget him. They associate him with the humiliation and weakness of the, of, of the past. Well, as you mentioned, it was not just Gorbachev, but the other central figure in the fall of the Soviet Union was President Reagan. Tell us a bit about their relationship. So it's a fascinating relationship where it uh, over the over the four years of Reagan's uh, second term, the time that Reagan was president while Gorbachev was his Soviet counterpart, we need to remember that they were rivals and adversaries you know our countries still were at uh, at odds in in the cold war uh reagan's goal was to uh to defeat soviet communism to destroy the soviet system whereas gorbachev's goal was to preserve it right so there's certainly uh, an adversarial relationship there but in the midst of that they also built a genuine friendship uh and a genuine partnership for bringing the cold war to a peaceful end as opposed to ending the cold war through a violent mili military conflict um and so by the time uh, Reagan leaves office, there's real affection between him and Gorbachev and, uh, and a real appreciation that the two of them had together, I think, made the world a more peaceful and less dangerous place. Now, Professor Inhofe, in, in, the, uh, in the article that you wrote for World Magazine today, you say that you give uh, President Reagan more credit for the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union than you do uh, Gorbachev. And I know this is an issue that historians debate. I am not a historian, so I'm not going to enter that debate. But tell us why you, you give President Reagan uh, more of that credit. So, yes. So a key thing to understand is President Reagan is sworn into office uh, in January of 1981, over four years before Gorbachev comes to power. And Reagan's strategy towards the Soviet Union, you know, he called it peace through strength, was to bring uh, tremendous pressure on the Soviet Union to outspend them uh, militarily, uh, to outbuild them militarily, uh, to, to put pressure on their economy, to support Christians and Jews who were in the gulag, who wanted fr religious freedom and freedom to worship and freedom within their own country. Uh, Reagan wanted to bring all that pressure on the Soviet Union 
so that the Soviet Union would have to bring uh, to produce a reformist leader. Uh, so I have a chapter in my book called Waiting for Gorbachev, because Reagan had been trying to pressure the Soviet system to produce just such a reformist leader as eventually Gorbachev was. Uh, and so I don't think we can understand Gorbachev even coming to power four years later without first understanding everything President Reagan had done uh, to, to kind of back the Soviet Union into a corner where even the senior Soviet leaders realized uh, we are about to collapse as a country and as a system unless we our last chance is to bring up a more reform-minded leader uh, such as such as Gorbachev. And then from there, uh, for the next four years, once Gorbachev comes to power, Reagan keeps the pressure on. Uh, there's a misnomer out there that in his second term, Reagan went more soft or only wanted to do friendly diplomacy with the Soviets. That's not true at all. You know, in 1987, he's telling Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Reagan continues his military buildup. He continues supporting the freedom fighters in Afghanistan who were, you know, trying to eject the Soviet occupation source, uh, uh, forces. He partners with Ch Pope John Paul II to support uh, the Catholic Solidarity Movement in, in, in Poland. Uh, so Reagan is continuing all this pressure on Gorbachev during, during, that, during that second term, while also extending the hand of friendship. And it's a remarkably sophisticated strategy by President Reagan, combining that pressure and that diplomacy. And that really boxes Gorbachev into a corner where Gorbachev realizes I have no choice but to negotiate, but to do these reforms, but to negotiate with this, with this American leader. We're speaking with uh, Professor William Inboden about the legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev on the day after his death. And Will, would you say, is it fair, in light of the pressure and the negotiations and the diplomacy and the relationship between uh, Gorbachev and Reagan, is it fair to say that Gorbachev's views changed over time, or did he just respond to a changing landscape? No. Oh. I, I think a lot of it is the latter, Joseph. I think a lot of it is Gorbachev just realized that he had a weaker and weaker hand to play. You know, when he came into office in 1985, he knew he had some challenges. Uh, but uh, as he continued to uh, learn more about his own government and his own system, realized that it's built on, built on this edifice of lies, realized that so many of the Soviet people detested their own government, that so many of the peoples of Eastern Europe uh, did not want to live under communist tyranny and slavery like that. Uh, Gorbachev just started to realize that he, there was, you know, almost almost no no way out. Um, now, in in the midst of that, uh, he, he he did arrive in office with a much more uh, negative view of President Reagan and the Americans. Uh, his initial intelligence assessment by the KGB said that you know Reagan is very dangerous. He's out to destroy us. You can't trust him. Gorbachev does change over time in realizing that President Reagan did want uh, to, to bring peace to the world, but he wanted to bring, he, Reagan thought that the biggest obstacle to peace was Soviet communism. And so that was that very, uh, very delicate balance that President Reagan was, was striking. And then finally, as, uh, as I mentioned in the article, you know, President Reagan was a very dedicated man of Christian faith. Gorbachev was an atheist. And Reagan had a real uh, personal hope to see Gorbachev come to believe in God and come to, uh, and come to faith. And so in the midst of their negotiations over Afghanistan and Eastern Europe and the Berlin Wall and nuclear war, Reagan was sharing the Christian gospel with him, encouraging him to read the Bible, encouraging him to, to believe in God. I don't know that Gorbachev ever did, but I do think we see some evidence of at least a little bit more openness on Gorbachev's part of realizing that you know Christians and Jews in the Soviet Union were not were not his enemy, that they were peaceful believers who just wanted more freedom for themselves and for and for their country. So those uh, those are some ways that I think Gorbachev may have changed a little bit uh, about um, you know taking a more positive view towards religious believers. 
an underrated part of the church's engagement in the culture and in the world is the opportunities to share the gospel with people who otherwise would never be able to hear it. Now, mm -hmm. Professor, we mentioned that in uh, 1991, uh, after several coup attempts, Gorbachev mm -hmm. left office. Uh, what has he been? What had he been doing since 1991? So, uh, well, for a while, Gorbachev uh, became, and I use this a little bit ironically, a good capitalist in terms of he went on the international speaker circuit. He was commanded, you know, a lot of money giving uh, guest, guest lectures and dinner addresses. Uh, he even did a little bit of corporate advertising for a while. He wrote his memoirs, which became best-selling um, and was, you know, something of an elder elder statesman of, of sorts. Uh, and he at least continued that for the next really 15 years or so uh, until about 2006, 2007. But but um, he, as you mentioned, he just had not been heard of, heard much from at all over the last decade. And I think that's because he increasingly realized how out of favor he was in his home country and that uh, Putin was keeping a pretty, pretty close eye on him. There are many examples of the best opponents of capitalism uh, leveraging it quite well when they have the opportunity to do that. In about 30 seconds, Will, does he, who does he leave behind? What's his family? Uh, his wife, Raisa, died about 20 years ago. I believe he has a daughter who's still alive, uh, but I think she was the only child. So, um, yeah, so not, not, much of a, not much of a Gorbachev family tree, at least that I'm aware of. Professor William Inboden, thank you so much for uh, catching us up on the life of Mikhail Gorbachev. Thanks for your time today. Thanks. Great to be with you and blessings to everyone. As we contemplate the end of a life, it always provides us an opportunity to contemplate our own mortality. Life is more than just about significance, and Gorbachev certainly had that, but did he have it in the right way? As Solomon, at the end of Ecclesiastes, summarizes his life, uh, he had everything, but he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, and every secret thing will bring to light, whether good or evil. Good reminder as we contemplate his life. We'll see you tomorrow on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God, but nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.